turn to Psalm 57. Psalm 57. You'll notice in the subscription, as you get there, where most of the psalms have directions and how the psalm was to be sung. And we find that here as well. We read it to the choir master according to do not destroy. Most most commentators believe that that was the, the tune, and so that would be a reference to the tune. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know what that tune was? Well, we don't know what the tune was, but that's likely a reference to it. A miktam, um, another musical term, that not quite sure what it means, but it's of David. And the background of it is when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, there's two periods of time where David is fleeing from Saul and finds himself hiding in a cave. Once, 1 Samuel 22, then two chapters later in 24. Uh, the, chapter 24 is probably the most uh, familiar account of him hiding in the, in the cave. It's when Saul goes into the cave to relieve himself, and David has an opportunity to kill him. And he's encouraged to do so. But David says, I will not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. And so he refuses to do that. Whether it was 1 Samuel 22 or 1 Samuel 24, we don't know. There could be, though, an indication in the tune, do not destroy, that it's possibly referring to 1 Samuel 24. Again, we don't know, but that would, that would make sense. But we have the background David is being chased by Saul. He is hiding in a cave. And Saul, this is key to understanding and unfolding what takes place here, is Saul is unable to locate David. In fact, even when he's in David's presence, he doesn't even know it because David is is hiding from him. The psalm is split up into two portions, really. The first portion is prayer, and the second portion is praise. And so if we look at the first six verses, we will see primarily that of prayer. And then when we get to verse 7 and on, we see that of praise. There's also two distinct markers in the psalm that I just want you to pay attention to. That is verse 5 and verse 11 where it repeats the same verse, which is also helpful in seeing the divisions in the text itself. So we see the structure, we see the the historical background, the context from which this comes. Um, And this is a song. This is what they would have sang. And so this is something we should sing. This this would have been something that David prayed. This would have been a a means of worship. And so is it there for us to, to likewise sing, as Paul tells us, psalms? So let us hear the word in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills His purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will not put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out His steadfast love and His faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. 
I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Notice the repetition in verse 1 of be merciful to me. O God, be merciful to me. David begins this prayer, this song, with a cry out to God for God's mercy to be shown. Why does David ask for mercy? Why is the repetition there? Because David's asking for something that he is in need of and he doesn't deserve. When we're praying for God's mercy upon us, we're praying for something that we have not earned, we have not merited, that we do not deserve. And so he begins by setting the tone of everything he's going to ask and everything he's going to praise God with by saying, I don't deserve what I'm asking you for, but I'm asking you for it because you, God, are merciful, and I cannot do this myself. And so we have to see that repetition of his prayer to God to be merciful to him. Now notice what he says, For in you my soul takes refuge, in the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. This is an interesting statement, because David has been quite apt at hiding from Saul. He has been quite good at avoiding Saul. In fact, he has been put in positions where he could take Saul's life, but he doesn't. He's hiding in a cave. Saul is completely disarmed, completely vulnerable to David. So Saul has no clue that David is anywhere near him. But yet David still is saying, I'm not finding my refuge in this cave, though I'm actually being protected in this cave. Think about that. The Lord has given him a a very tangible and physical means of protection. But that's not where David says his protection lies. It actually lies in the Lord himself. Even in the midst of somewhat, or relative, safety. He says the shadow of your wings, which is obviously poetic. We know that God does not have wings. It's a picture of a bird that's covering their young so that they would be protected. And it's really to actually give us this image of the fatherly protection of God over his people. It's an amazing picture of God, actually, that our Heavenly Father would protect his people like a bird would protect its young with its own body. That's the picture. That's what he's saying he has in God. Spurgeon says something to the effect of, we need to experience this experimentally. 
meaning this is, needs to be an experience of ours. He says when we don't see the Father's face shining upon us, it is blessed to cower down beneath the shadow of His wings. That we have that same comfort and same promise of protection. And listen to what He says. It's till the storms of destruction pass by. In other words, He says, the repetition of be merciful to me, be merciful to me, Hide me in the shadow of your wings until this crisis passes me by. I need your protection. He goes on to say, I cry out to God most high. Now, he moves from pleading for mercy to say he cries out, and we see that over and over again in the Psalms where David says, I cry out, I'm crying out to God. Where sometimes I think that that's an unfamiliar language for us because it seems like we have to be in the, in the crux of a crisis to be able to actually cry out to God. And that's exactly where we find David is in a crisis. And he cries out to God. And it is appropriate to cry out to God in a crisis. And David's at a place of desperation. And so then he cries out to God. And he says, God most high. And he actually uses the name of God. In the name of God to show God's exalted nature. In some ways, to say God most high is to say and recognize God's otherness. That God's not like us. That God is not physical. God's not made of parts. This is to speak of God's exalted nature. That God is higher in his authority, higher in his power, that he is higher and above all things, that there's nothing that compares to God. He's crying out to that God. Now think about the statement that David is crying out to that God that is high above all things, which means the greatest of all greats, our God is available for His people to cry out to Him. So we could see the otherness of that, but what we also need to see that this God actually wants His people to cry out to Him. And we're not crying out just to anybody. We're crying out to God Most High, He who is above all. Now He says this, which is packed full of theological significance to God who fulfills His purpose for me. That means that God brings things to an intended end. God brings things to completion. It is to say that what God has put into effect, He will finish it. What this means is that all that God has promised to do, all that God has said He would do, all that is within God's character, God will bring to a completion. He will fulfill what He has began to do. God's decree will work itself out. It will come to an end. Psalm 138 verse 8 says something very similar. The Lord will fulfill His purpose for me. I just want to reflect on this for a moment. It means this, is that God's plan cannot be thwarted. 
God's plan cannot be stopped. God's plan cannot be successfully opposed. There's something else about this is going to the otherness of God. God's not like us where he makes promises. God's not like us where he makes statements uh, of what he will do and then never follow through. That's our experience with one another. Even the best of us will make statements and say things that we're going to do, but we don't follow through. God's not like that. We have to recognize that the very nature of God and His character is one of truth and holiness with no stain of imperfection in it. If God has said He is going to do something, He's not like you and I, where we have to question, is He really going to do it? We don't have to wonder, will God fulfill His plan for me? We don't have to wonder, will God bring all things to a completed end? If we began to assert otherwise, we would have to assert something of God that makes God no longer God. That's the first thing that's a means of comfort for us in this verse, is that God is not like you and I. There's another thing, is that there's great comfort and peace in this reality of God, because He makes promises to us. He makes promises to us. David's knowledge of who God is brings him comfort in this point that God will fulfill his purpose for him. Now, you just think of the context of David. David was promised some things that seem very incredible to us. David was promised an eternal throne that would be realized in his son, that the the kingdom of David would be eternal. David's promised that. He's promised an eternal kingdom that would come about and be realized in his greater son. And you might think, wow, I can't relate to that at all. Well, friends, if you're in Christ tonight, you have been given an eternal kingdom in Christ. That is yours now. That is a promise that is relevant for your life right now. Just think of a couple of passages with me. In Luke chapter 17, we read this in verse 21 of Luke 17. We'll back up and we'll go to verse 20 to give it some context. So Luke 17, 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come. He answered, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. What does that mean? It means that the kingdom of God is now. That the kingdom of God is now. You look over at John chapter 18, verse 36. Most informing passage that should instruct us on how we view God's kingdom. Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Jesus says that that is now, that it's in the midst of you. It's a present reality. What do we read throughout Scripture? That all dominions, all rulers are under the authority of Christ. The powers and rulers of this world have power over us, right? They do have power over us. We have very little power as individuals over those that are over us, that in God's sovereignty have been placed over us. And so in one sense, we have powers that are over us, but they're still under God's sovereign rule. They have no power over God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is all-encompassing of all things that exist. So it's an amazing reality to think about that we can actually join David in saying the same thing to God who fulfills his purpose for me. David was promised an eternal kingdom that was realized in his son, and his son now says that that is yours. You're part of that. So guess what? Nothing will ever oppose that kingdom. Nothing will ever destroy that kingdom. Jesus even says that the gates of hell cannot prevail against the church. And that he will build the church. He will build his kingdom. We receive this same reality that God fulfills his purpose for me. It's another thing that I want to point out about this is David looks back to what God has promised to him to say this. God has promised me an eternal kingdom. And so what's David looking back? He's looking back upon the promises of God that were given to him by God's word. You know, whenever we begin to to doubt that, we begin to be distressed about God's promises. Let me just remind you of one promise that's helpful. It comes in the curse. Genesis 3.15 I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this contains the promises of life and this contains the promises of a Messiah that's going to be coming. And this becomes the promises of a Messiah that will crush the head of the serpent whereas Adam felled, whereas Israel felled, whereas all the kings of Israel continually felled. This is a promise that God will bring one day one from the seed of the woman that will conquer all. And you know what's amazing about that? Is God did not just say it here, but then He reminds His people, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. He even told the prophets to say, Why don't you repeat this to them so they know this truth that I keep my promises and my son one day is coming? If we ever begin to doubt whether God will fulfill His purposes, just look back to the promise of Christ and the fulfillment that one day in Bethlehem there was a baby born of the Virgin Mary and that He went to the cross, He died, and He rose again 
If you ever begin to doubt whether God will accomplish His purpose, just remember and look to the cross. For there we see that as all the nations and all the kingdoms conspired against Christ, it was according to the predeterminate plan of God. That the God who promises to bring His Son brought His Son, and His Son that was promised to come to crush the head of the serpent has crushed the head of the serpent and has ushered in His kingdom right now that we experience and enjoy. If you ever begin to doubt it, just look upon the Word of God where you receive these promises and know that God is working His purpose into its intended end in your life just as He was in David's life. There's, there's another point that I think that we should, we should reflect on, and that is this. This actually relieves us of worry. This is this knowing that God is going to fulfill His purpose for me. It, it, it relieves anxiety. It relieves stress. It relieves the worry and the things that consume us in this world. And that way, we're not hindered from doing what God has called us to do. This is a means to help us. So we're not consumed with the things of the world. In fact, look at verse 9. I think it's informative. It says, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. What's the significance of that? Is David becomes a, a missionary to the Gentiles. Grace breaks the the hardened heart against the Gentiles in David. What is his purpose? Well, you look at Solomon's dedicatory prayer of the temple. It was the temple would be a light to all nations. You look at the laws of Israel, that they would welcome in foreigners, that they could know God. David wants to be a light to the nations. Do you know what the Christ has called the church to? What is the mission of the church? This seems to be a very confusing thing for people today when Jesus has clearly spared out, spelled out what the mission of the church is. The mission of the church is to take the gospel to the ends of the world. That's the mission of the church. That's what we're commanded to do. It's not that hard. Though it seems to be very difficult today to think about that because we get consumed with all sorts of other things. If we're constantly consumed and bogged down with the things of this world, will we be able to do what Christ has called us to do? No, actually, this is a means to remove anything that would hinder us from the mission that Christ has called us to do. This is why Jesus tells the disciples, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to wear. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them, and he will provide these for you. You seek after righteousness, and your heavenly Father will take care of you. His promises to us that he will fulfill his purpose relieves worry, relieves anxiety, not so that we live worry-free lives, but so that we are not hindered from the mission, so that we can sing the praises of God to the nations, just as David says in verse 9. Well, there's another thing here, is this, as I want you to notice, David's hiding in a cave, Saul wants to kill him. 
Saul has been chasing him for some time. David believes his life is in danger. That Saul wants to physically kill him. And in the midst of that is when David reflects on this point. God actually is going to be sovereign in this matter too. Boy, that teaches us a lot, doesn't it? Think about what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. You can say it from memory. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God is working all things for good in David's life here. David recognizes it. While he's in the midst of suffering, he's able to say, even then, this is part of God's plan for my life. Let me ask you, when you're facing trials and suffering, are you able to say, this is part of God's plan for my life? And I trust that my God, my Father, who will protect me in the shadow of his wings is good, even while I'm being chased by a madman that wants to kill me. I mean, that puts some perspective on it because that's the situation David finds himself in, is that a madman literally is wanting to kill him. Now, I want you to notice the transition that comes here as we move into verse 3, because verse 2, he speaks of God's exalted nature, that is that God is in heaven. But then look what he says in verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This God that is high and exalted, that is above all, that is other, he's actually going to intervene in my life and protect me. His presence and his otherness are not an impediment to helping us. David speaks from his earthly position that God's protection will come out of heaven, which is speaking of the supernatural aspect of the salvation that's coming for David. It will be something extraordinary that God is going to perform on his part. In fact, that's how Calvin interprets this idea from heaven he will do this, is that David is asking for a miraculous supernatural deliverance from God that will take place. And he specifically asks that God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. That steadfast love is that Hebrew word has said, which is referring always to his mercy or covenantal faithfulness. And his faithfulness, or in some translations, his truth, is firmness of God's truth. So he's asking that God who is faithful, who is God to his, faithful to his promises and to his covenant, that he would be firm in this. And David appeals to these attributes of God because God's promises to David are the very things that give him hope of deliverance. What is it that gives you hope of deliverance as well? It can't be your own works. It can't be your own confidence. Otherwise, you would not have any confidence. 
Look at how this confidence manifests itself. He says in verse 4, My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts. The children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. I love this because he's able to lie down amid the flames and darts of the evil one. It literally, the lie down means he's able to recline. While he's being pursued and he describes his enemies, David has such great comfort that he's able to lie down as the great shepherd allows him to. To lie down in green pastures even while he's being attacked. And this whole idea that he's able to lay down, a soldier will not lay down and close his eyes when he's in the midst of an enemy. He'll stay awake and continue to fight. But David says he's able to recline here. In many ways, he's Daniel in the lion's den. He's untouched. You see, Satan will throw his darts at you, but you'll be protected in the midst of the attack. And that's what he's saying here. It's not that his enemies just necessarily go away or that there's no present reality of a danger there, but it is to say that he is able to trust and relax in God's sovereign plan. You know, think of Christian in Pilgrim's Progress in the Valley of Humiliation being attacked by Apollyon. When he was almost completely beat up and ready to give up, we read this, Bunyan writes, while Apollyon was preparing to strike his final blow to completely annihilate his foe, Christian quickly grabbed his sword saying, Do not gloat over me, my enemy. Though I have fallen, I will rise again. With that, Christian gave Apollyon a deadly thrust that made him fall back as if mortally wounded. Seeing this, Christian attacked again saying, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Apollyon then spread his dragon wings and sped away in defeat, and Christian would see him no more. You know, Bunyan was just capturing the the armor of God and the full armor of God, which we know when Paul talks about that, and when Bunyan writes about it, he was not talking about something physical. He was not talking about physically fighting. He was talking about what we have in Christ. Bunyan's point was to emphasize the full armor of God. None of it is physical, but rather a resting in the Lord. To recline and trust in the Lord, in his sword, the word of truth. That's why David could lie down when the enemy was attacking him, and that's why we can as well. That doesn't mean passivity, it means trust. It means that God's in control. And that is exactly what David says. And he then goes into praise of God. It's almost as if he's overwhelmed and says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. He was protected, and that is why he could praise God even though he was attacked. David knows that the Lord is exalted in keeping his promises to him. So he says, you be exalted, O Lord. He says, they set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. 
They dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. You see, the very traps that they set up against David would be the very traps that take them down. And that's true. Your sin will find you out. They were pursuing God's anointed, and God used their own traps against them. Think about how David's or Saul's fate and his end of his life came about. He was killed in a humiliating way. His own traps that he set up against David come back swinging on him. And this is true. We see this in Proverbs chapter 29, verse 6, a warning for us. An evil man is ensnared in his transgressions. David's just simply praying that an evil man would be ensnared in his own transgressions. We see that in verse 16 of Proverbs 29, when the wicked increase, transgression increases. But they'll be caught up in their own transgression. They'll be caught up in it just as Saul was. David moves from prayer to praise. After all of that that he said, he renews himself to worship in light of God's revelation. Worship is a response to God who reveals himself. And so he says in verse 7, My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. That is to say he is renewing his worship to God. And so he begins by praise while he's still in the cave. His meditation upon the nature of God, the promises of God, led him to not be consumed with his own situation, but rather to praise God from the cave. He says, I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre, and I will awake the dawn. Think about that, that he will sing and to the Lord. He wants to sing so that it will be heard by all nations. He says in verses 9 through 11, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. David publicly wants people to know of God's deliverance, of God's salvation. In other words, he wants to exalt God publicly for the salvation that he has received from God. He wants to share publicly the promises of God. He wants to see God glorified. Should that not be our heart's desires if you're in Christ this evening, that you have known Christ, you have been delivered from the pit, you have been delivered from the darts of the enemy, you have entered into the kingdom of God. Shouldn't that be our desire to share of that deliverance, to sing of that deliverance, that all nations would know that? This is the proper response to deliverance. When we have experienced salvation, when we've truly experienced salvation, we then likewise must recognize the danger that we were once in. 
Notice David has talked about the danger he was once in. And because he has been delivered from that danger, he wants to praise God. If you are in Christ tonight, the danger you were in prior to Christ was far greater than David's danger. Because the danger the one is in that is apart from Christ is under the wrath of God at this moment and they will face God's wrath for all of eternity. And if you have been delivered from that, you have been delivered from a lot greater worry or danger than someone like Saul facing you with an army. In fact, we would much rather face all the armies in the world combined of all the histories of time combined than ever face one ounce of God's wrath. If we've been delivered, we have actually been delivered from God's wrath by God. That should result in singing and praise and wanting to tell others how God, from heaven... Think about what Jesus says. You must be born from above. From heaven. We have received this salvation. We have received this deliverance. There's something else about this psalm that I think we want to take note of as we look at the total of the psalm. There's there's this constant connection in Scripture between meditating upon the nature or attributes of God and finding comfort in them. You constantly see this in the scripture where there is a short little statement about God's nature, God's character, or an attribute of God specifically spelled out, and it results in peace, joy, worship, praise, comfort, contentment. That always comes with meditating upon the nature of God. And we see that connection continually. What is it that gets us through the hard times? Well, we know that we've been, we've been rescued by Christ. We know that Christ has saved us. But if we, we, and, and that is a wonderful promise and, and then should be, be a constant reminder. Why? Because God is gracious. Because God is merciful. And why that promise will remain true is because of God's steadfast love that He has set upon us that will never, ever be broken. These are the attributes of God. These are the, this is the character of God. And those are wonderful reminders to bring us comfort and peace in whatever we're facing in life. And so I think this is a call to know His Word. David knew the Word of God. Trusted in God's word. He, 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 he appeals to God's words by way of God's promises who will fulfill his promises, purposes for him. So when we look at how David sought God in desperate times, how, how is it that we seek God in desperate times? And also in desperate times, David honors God by praise. How do we honor God in desperate times? Think of Job loses everything and he bows down and worships. That was the response. David teaches us something also crucial. He wanted God to protect him. He wanted, in many ways, a change in circumstances. He was tired of being chased by Saul. But that, that too often is the focus of our prayers, is where we just merely want a change in circumstances, isn't it? 
But there's more to David than just wanting a change of circumstances, isn't there? There's actually far more to David here in his prayer. God was changing him, and David never went beyond what God had promised to him. I think that's instructive. This is where we go wrong. This is where we go wrong. We're not promised that we will escape troubles. Actually, Jesus promises that we'll we'll have them. We're not promised an escape from suffering or escape from persecution. We're promised that we might face those things. And in that, we're actually promised that he who has power over body and soul for all of eternity will usher us into his heavenly presence. That's what we're promised. And that the journey there, whatever we faced, our journey to the celestial city, his presence will always be there with us to guide us, to protect us, and see that we do not slip. That he's there to comfort us by way of his spirit. That's what we're promised. We're not a promised escape. We're promised his presence. And so let us pray for that comfort to be evident in our own lives at all times. And let us with David know that God will in fact, fulfill his purpose for you because he's a good God and he is a true God. He is the covenant-keeping God that sent his son to ensure our salvation and to keep us. It is his son who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand on high and rules over the kingdoms of all kingdoms now in his kingdom. That's our promise, and he will fulfill his purpose for you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the promises that are in him. We thank you for these reminders that you are a covenant-keeping God. You are a God that fulfills your purpose for your people. And we have no need to doubt that. For we can just simply look to your promise to send your Son and see the fulfillment of you sending your Son. And the hope we have that your son will return again. We long for that day. We pray that you would prepare our hearts for it to live by your grace in all things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.